Chapter 20 of Marjorie Dean, High School Freshman, by Pauline Lester. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ashley Jane. Chapter 20 The Crowning Injury. Marjorie never remembered just how she reached home that afternoon. She followed the familial streets mechanically, her brain tortured with but one burning thought. Constance was a thief. Over and over the dreadful sentence repeated itself in her mind. How could she? was her half-sobbed whisper as she slipped quietly into the house, and without even glancing toward the living room, went softly upstairs to her room. She wanted to be alone. Not even her beloved captain could ease the hurt dealt her by the girl she had loved and trusted. Her mother must never know that Constance was unworthy. No one should know, but she could never, never be friends with Constance again. With the tears running down her cheeks, Marjorie took off the new fur coat she had worn so proudly that afternoon and dropped it upon the first convenient chair. Her hat followed it, then throwing herself across the bed she gave way to uncontrolled weeping. Until that moment she had not realised how greatly she had loved this girl who had Mary's eyes of true blue, but who was so sadly lacking in Mary's fine sense of honour. Until the afternoon light waned and the shadows began to creep upon her she lay mourning and inconsolable. Her generous heart had been sorely wounded and she could not easily thrust aside her dreadful sense of loss. Neither could she understand why Constance had partly acknowledged that she took the butterfly pin but had not offered to return it. I couldn't ask her for it, she sighed to herself as at last she rose, switched on the electric light and viewed her tear-swollen face in the mirror not when she had kept it all this time. She knew how dreadfully I felt over losing it, and she certainly saw the notice in the hall. A flash of resentment tinged her grief. I can't forgive her. I'll never forgive her. I... Marjorie's lips began to quiver ominously. I won't cry any more, she asserted stoutly. My face is a sight now. Mother will ask me what the trouble is, and I don't want a soul to know. Of course we can't go to the matinee tomorrow. We can't ever go anywhere together again. Once more the tears threatened to fall. She shut her eyes and forced them back, then went dejectedly down the hall to the bathroom to lave her flushed face and aching eyes. By the time dinner was ready, Marjorie showed no traces of her grief. She was unusually quiet at dinner, however, and her mother inquired anxiously if she were ill. "'Did you wear your new coat this afternoon?' her father asked soberly. "'Yes, General. I went to see Constance.' Marjorie tried to speak naturally. "'Ah, that accounts for it.' he declared, putting on a professional air. Too much magnificence has struck in. You have no doubt a well-developed case of pride and vanity. I haven't a single shred of either, 
protested Marjorie, laughing a little at her father's tone, which was an exact imitation of their former family physician. That sounded just like good old Dr. Bates. Are you and Constance going to take Charlie to the matinee tomorrow, dear? asked her mother. No, mother, returned Marjorie. Then, as though determined to evade further questioning, she asked, May I go shopping with you? I wish you would. You can select the material for your new dress and the lace for that blouse I am making for you. It is so pretty. My new fashion book came today. I have picked out several styles of gowns for you. What did you pick out for me? inquired Mr. Dean ingenuously. You can't have any new clothes. Too much magnificence would strike in. You would have, no doubt, a well-developed case of pride and vanity, retorted Marjorie wickedly. Report at the guardhouse at once for disrespectful conduct to your superior officer, ordered Mr. Dean with great severity. Not tonight, thank you, bowed the disobedient lieutenant as all three rose from the table. I am going upstairs to my room to write a letter. Once in her room, Marjorie went to her desk and opened it with a reluctance born of the knowledge of a painful task to be performed. Seating herself, she reached for her pen and nibbled the end soberly as she racked her brain for the best way to begin a note to Constance. Finally she decided and wrote, Dear Constance, I cannot come over to your house tomorrow or ever again. I know what you wanted to tell me. It is too dreadful to think of. You should have told me before. I will never let anyone know, so you need not worry. You have hurt me terribly, and I can't forgive you yet, but I hope I shall some day. I don't like to mention things, but for your own sake won't you try to do what is right about the pin? I shall always speak to you in school, for I don't wish the girls to know we have separated. Your sorrowfully, Marjorie. When she had finished, the all-too-ready tears had again flooded her eyes and dropped unrestrained upon the green blotting-pad on her desk. After a little, she slowly wiped her eyes and, without reading what she had written, folded the letter, addressed and stamped it. Slipping into her coat, she wound a silken scarf about her head and went downstairs. "'I'm going out to the mailbox, mother,' she called as she passed the living-room door. "'Very well,' returned Mrs. Dean abstractedly. She was deep in her book and did not glance up, for which Marjorie was thankful. If her mother noticed her reddened eyelids, explanations would necessarily follow.' The next day dragged interminably. Even the usual pleasure of going shopping with her captain could not mitigate the pain of yesterday's shocking discovery. To Marjorie the bare idea of theft was abhorrent. When, at the Halloween dance, Mignon had accused Constance of taking her bracelet, Marjorie's wrath at the insult to her friend had been righteous and sweeping. 
That night, as she sat opposite her mother in the living room, trying to read one of the books she had received for Christmas, the incident of the missing bracelet and Mignon's accusation suddenly loomed up in her mind like an unwelcome spectre. Suppose Mignon had been right after all? Jerry had openly asserted that she did not believe Mignon had really lost her bracelet, and in her anger Marjorie had secretly agreed with the stout girl. Suppose Constance had taken it? What if she were one of those persons one reads of in books whom continued poverty had made dishonest, or perhaps she was a kleptomaniac? The last idea, though unpleasant to contemplate, was not so repugnant to her at first, but she did not believe it to be true. Constance's partial confession, coupled with her ready tears, was positive proof that she had been conscious of her act of theft. There was only one other theory left. She had found the pin and succumbed to the temptation of keeping it. Yet Constance had always averred that she did not care for jewellery and would not wear it if she possessed it. Marjorie went over these suppositions again and again, but each time her theories ended with the bitter fact that, in spite of her tears, Constance had kept her ill-gotten bauble. The vacation which had promised so much, and which she had happily supposed would be all too short, seemed endless. During the long days that followed, she received no word from the girl in the little grey house. If Constance had received her letter, she made no sign and this served to add to Marjorie's belief in her unworthiness. Jerry Mace's New Year's party proved a welcome relief from the hateful experience through which she had passed. Although invited, Constance was not among the merry gathering of young people, and Jerry loudly lamented the fact. Mr. Stevens and Uncle John Rowland, who furnished the music for the dancing, greeted Marjorie with affectionate regard. It was evident that they knew nothing of what had transpired. Constance was ill, her father reported, but hoped to be able to return to school on Tuesday. He thanked Marjorie for her remembrance of him and Charlie, and Uncle John forgot himself and repeated everything after him with grateful nods and smiles. During the evening Marjorie frequently found herself near the two musicians, and Lawrence Armitage, secretly disappointed because of Constance's absence, also did considerable loitering in their immediate vicinity. If the troubled little lieutenant had had nothing on her mind, she would have spent a most delightful evening, for the Mace's enormous living room had been transformed into a veritable ballroom, where the guests might dance without bumping elbows at every turn, while Hal and Jerry were the most hospitable entertainers. If Constance's father and foster-uncle had not been present, she might have forgotten her woes but whenever she glanced at either, the sorrowful face of the Mary girl rose before her. To make matters worse, Jerry proposed to her that they call upon Constance the next day, and Marjorie was obliged to refuse lamely without giving any apparent reason. It was in the nature of a relief to her when the party broke up. In spite of the gratifying knowledge that the girls had pronounced her new white silk frock the prettiest gown of all, 
and that Hal Macy had been her devoted cavalier, Marjorie Dean went to bed that night in a most unhappy mood. The Monday before she returned to school, she began a long letter to Mary. She and Mary had sworn that, though miles divided them, they would tell each other their secrets. Resolved to keep her word, she had written her heart out to her chum, then had read the letter and torn it into little pieces. Having written only pleasant things of her new friend to Mary, she could not bear to take away her good name with a few strokes of her pen. If only Constance were true and honourable like Mary, she sighed as she closed her desk, and selecting a book, she wandered disconsolately downstairs to the living room to read. But her thoughts continually reverted to her own grievance. If she gives back my pin, I'll forgive her was her final conclusion as at last she laid her book aside with an impatient sigh and sitting down on a little stool near the fire stared gloomily into its ruddy depths but i never 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 can feel the same toward her again marjorie went to school on tuesday morning vaguely hoping that constance would see things in a finer light and act accordingly Unselfish in most respects, the poor little soldier had forgotten everything save the fact that she was the injured one. To her it seemed as though the other girl's crushing weight of half-acknowledged guilt ought to make her a willing suppliant for pardon. During the early part of the morning session she waited, half expecting to receive a contrite plea for grace from the Mary girl. When her French hour came, she hurried into the classroom, thinking that she might see Constance before the class gathered. But Professor Fontaine had closed the door and remarked genially, Bonjour, mademoiselles. Comment vous portez-vous aujourd'hui? I trust that you have not forgotten your French during your holiday, when it opened quietly to admit Constance. Marjorie regarded her gravely, noting that she looked pale and tired. Suddenly her eyes opened in wide, unbelieving amazement. With a half-smothered exclamation that caused half the class to turn and look at her, including Mignon, whose alert eyes travelled knowingly between the two girls, she tore her gaze from the disturbing sight and, putting one hand over her eyes, leaned her head on her arm for fastened at the open neck of Constance's blouse was her butterfly pin. End of chapter 20 Recording by Ashley Jane